Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm your host, Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Friederike Mengel and Carlos Carrillo Tudela from the Department of Economics at the University of Essex. So our topic today is labour and work. Important to all of us, the labour economics, the changing work structures that we see at the moment, the impact upon women, on well-being and on unemployment. So big topics. Friederike and Carlos, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Um, so let's begin a bit with your own work and interests. So could you just give us a bit of a headline about your research and the kinds of areas of impact that you're looking for, how economics improves people's lives, the study of it. Um, so, Federico, why don't you start? Yeah, thank you, Jules. Um, so I'm a behavioral economist. I do a lot of work on uh, social networks, uh, how, how much influence people have in social networks, how they learn from others in social networks. And recently I've worked uh, on uh, uh, working from home and I've studied uh, how working from home affects productivity and also innovation in a, in a firm. That's great. I mean, it's um, again, this is something we've almost everybody's experienced, either directly or have known others who've, been, who've experienced this in the past three years. That's right, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit in, in a moment. So, Carlos, tell us a little bit about your areas of work. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Jules. Um, so my work is in relation to labor economics, but the macroeconomy implications of that. I study unemployment, uh, inequality, and recently I've been studying how workers are moving from different sectors. So um, when you think about labor shortages, for example, that is exactly what we we study, is how people move from one sector to another and what, what decisions do they make and why do they do that. Mm. Okay. And that has impacts upon individuals as well as the economies at large and interactions between countries? Of course. Um, when you think about um, whether, say, food and accommodation is a sector that is perhaps finding difficult to get people back to work uh, and serve customers, then the question is where those workers are. Uh, have they decided to just <laughs> not go into work there because, say, wages are low, conditions are bad? Are they trying to upgrade their skills and move to different sectors that pay better? Um, that, that is the type of questions that we, we think about that links to inequality, for example. Yeah. And could you just say, both of you, a little bit about how then, when, when you're finding out about things, researching them and understanding how these, these complex dynamics are working, how does that then, um, the research then move to a point where it might influence policy or influence people, people's lives for the better? How, how does that then go an extra step? Um, it's not just finding out about stuff, it's kind of making things better, presumably, as well. Yeah, um, so I guess the first step we do is we have to make an effort to communicate our research, um, you know, outside of the academic community. Um, in our last study with the working um, from home transition, we were very successful with that. We had a lot of media coverage, a lot of sort of, uh, you know, on radio and TV. And that, of course, helps. And that means a lot of people are aware of your research and then you get contacted by people so you don't have to reach out actively. But um, people then want to know, you know, how can I use these insights within my company or within my business? And, you know, and uh, in, in our particular case, we found that productivity, for example, declines. So it was not a, you know, and people are like, okay, you know, but some of my employees, they would like to stay at home. You know, now how can I, how can I work around this and how can I, you know, 
And so they, we can, of course, not give answers to everything because, you know, we, we know what our data told us, but we don't, you know, we haven't, you know, run all the experiments you would need to run, but we can give them some, you know, some tips on, you know, maybe you want to try out this and we can also tell them a little bit about, you know, how to look for evidence, right? How to do sort of a clean comparison um, when they're trying out alternative schemes mm. maybe in, the, in their company. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, so um, very similarly, uh, when when you write a piece of research, you try to get the word out, not only to your fellow academics, but to the wider public. And pieces like um, the conversation, for example, are very useful, or reaching out to newspapers, um, The Economist, uh, even the BBC, they are great outlets when you have a great idea. Um, in our case, for example, there was uh, quite a lot of <laughs> attention for the pieces that we wrote on the over 50s retiring. Um, and the question was why? It was not only from the news uh, outlets that I mentioned, but also from the government uh, and several departments of the government and trying to understand why they were actually uh, retiring in mass. Um, so we explained the differences in terms of gender, in terms of income, uh, and that created a, a big puzzle saying, we need to know more. Um, and then, you know, companies also might want to contact you saying, we're having this problem. So uh, how can I think Give about it? Give us some it? advice on yeah. this. Yeah. I, think, I think what economists do quite well is they're very comfortable with big, big data, complex problems, um, social complex problems and have the, I think, quantitative and analytical tools to really hone down on what is the questions and how to answer those questions. Uh, for example, Frederica might think of it in, say, experimentals, lab settings. I think of it in terms of data, analyzing data, looking at data patterns from either my own data or secondary data, and then using models, mathematical models, to think about uh, the underlying mechanisms of, say, for example, the trade-offs individuals make. To, to give you an example, should I go out of the labor market or should I stay in the labor market? What are the counterbalancing forces? So the big questions for all of us. I mean, the, exactly. the, the point is that in, in, in both of your forms of work, your areas of work, um, you're, you're gathering all sorts of data, you're understanding the complex interactions between it, but you are coming quite quickly to questions of relevance to um, our listeners. I mean, people are saying, well, that's interesting, working from home, right, tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. Or when's the best time to retire? Or did I retire too soon? Perhaps I should be thinking slightly differently. So let's go into both of those. Tell us a little bit more uh, Friederike, about the the working from home research. I mean, this is something, as we just said, as uh, uh, a familiar part of the work pattern for many mm -hmm. individuals and for many businesses at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but you found that that um, that it's slightly more complex than than That's many people true. think, which is yeah, yeah. kind of <laughs> interesting. Um, uh, and then, what is it that that worked, and what is it that didn't work? For the company, yes. Um, so there's this joke, no, that when you ask an economist something, they always say it depends, right? And <laughs> that's a little bit um, probably what this answer will also uh, sound like. So we worked with a large uh, IT company in uh, in India, and uh, probably what I say will apply to jobs, you know, that are sort of similar to IT workers, similar require some extent of you know collaboration, interaction, and uh, you know, and uh, in in other you know, uh, research people have found, for example, for call center workers who do not have a, need a lot of sort of the cop the job is more simple, it's not as complex, doesn't require as much coordination and interaction. There they have actually found positive effects on productivity. So what we found with, with the Indian company 
we had a huge sample, 10,000 uh, IT um, employees, um, and we had extremely detailed data about them um, in terms of, you know, how how do they actually spend their day. They, the, the company uses software that tracks what they do on the computer, so we know it's a bit... Yes, it, it, <laughs> it makes, a bit, makes you uh, kind big, of yeah, shiver yeah. a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big surveillance state, yeah. But, uh, I mean, the employees know that the software is installed, so we know at any given second, actually, if we wanted to have the data at that level of granularity, we could, but we didn't ask for that. Um, you know, what, um, what, what they're doing, right? Are they on Facebook? Are they in the coding tool? Are they writing emails? Uh, and so on. And... Um, so we could use this data to understand exactly how they work, and the company also has very detailed performance measures. And so we saw that during um, working from home, they, they approximately kept to the same level of output or performance. Maybe it slightly decreased. It depends a little bit on how you look at the data. Certainly didn't increase, um, but they spent a lot more effort, in uh, a lot more hours in front of the computer, in, in actually in their coding tools in order to, um, to, uh, to reach these goals. And so in that sense, we found that uh, productivity decreased for them. As I said, initially, sort of the answer depends. It may not decrease in, in every job sector, but for, these, um, uh, for this uh, type of job, uh, we felt um, the, the coordination or interaction is important. They need to sometimes check with a colleague quickly, you know, why does this not work? What is happening here? And obviously, if you're physically um, separated at a distance, you need to go on a Zoom call. And then it just doesn't happen so quickly and so often, and and and, and that's what, uh, right. what slows people. So, so part of this is the is the 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 new modes of working of of Zoom calls and yeah. and the kind of imposition of those and and how they deliver certain kinds of information, but they don't deliver the, the social the interaction sort of, that exactly. you have. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, in work. Yeah. Well, that's 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 interesting. So, Carlos, tell us a, a bit about. I mean, obviously, we're we're speaking. Um, uh, we hope to say after COVID, we're three years on from the first lockdowns. <laughs> let, let's kind of hope that we're in the post phase now at the moment. But certainly these the kind of labor changes that have happened as a result of COVID have influenced people's retirement decisions, as you were just saying, Carlos. But other th other things in the workforce as well, as well as thinking about working from home, which we were forced mm. to do. Mm. People are looking for new models, maybe hybrid models, as we were saying there. What what sorts of things have you picked up? So it's very interesting what happened during COVID because not only the working from home, everybody was forced to do that, um, and you know trying to get your bearings about children running around and doing things and trying to actually do work. Um, but I think it all depends um, on the sector you're working on. Um, as Federico was saying, the IT sector is a sector that is easily transferable from work, i.e. physical, going to your company office to just moving it to your home office. Um, and there are other sectors that that's much harder to do. Uh, <clears throat> as we saw, uh, delivery drivers cannot just work from home. Uh, nurses cannot just work from home. So, um, so it depends where you, where, where, which sector you, you, you've been working on. And also it depends um, on the state of your sector in the long run. So remember that we are in a world, um, not only the UK, but across many countries, that we're experiencing something we call uh, technological change, 
bias technological change. And this bias is because the technology that we are now using more and more um, is complementary to the skills of the higher educated individuals. So, for example, if you are presented with a perhaps much efficient, um, much more efficient computer, your productivity could increase irrespectively of where you work. Um, but um, that computer or that piece of software or that piece of technology might not have the same impact to somebody that is at the very low end of the skill distribution. Think about a truck driver. Think about um, a janitor. Um, those those manual jobs somehow, you know, are are less affected by by technological innovation. <clears throat> but then there is this middle <laughs> part of the skill distribution that effectively can be replaced uh, by machines, by AI, uh, robots, and so on. Um, and those are the ones that suffer quite a bit. So, of course, this doesn't happen from one day to another. These are, peri- these are changes that occur over 30, 40 years. Um, now, if you think of that very long trend now, bang, COVID hits, um, you, you saw that are the higher skilled uh, sectors that were the ones that you would do from home. So they were the ones that were not really affected. Those that were um, uh, 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 frontline services that were not easily replaceable by a... Had to do that. Had to do that. Yeah. So the really ones that were affected were the middle ones. Yeah. Um, so people started thinking about those those long-run declines in their sectors and suddenly being shut down. Um, so you saw quite a lot of people saying, well, you know, <laughs> I'm just fed up with it and and move out of the labor market. Yes. Now, So it forced decisions. Of, of, it forced decisions. On but people to a certain extent. But the nuance of this is that when you look at the data in, in the UK, we have the Labour Force Survey that asks the question, why did you lose your job? Either you quit, as you may suggest, uh, or you were forced. I mean, it's difficult to say because either you were um, you were uh, pushed or, or you jumped <laughs> because you were going to be pushed. So many people declare themselves as being re- made redundant. Um, but they also declare that they don't want to go back to work. So that is the interesting aspect of it is you lose a job in a declining sector, those middle sectors, um, and you say, I don't want to go back to work. And that's why we saw quite a lot of the non-participation rate that we see, those people not looking for work, um, rise in the UK. So we saw this unemployment not really moving that much during the pandemic and now, um, but we saw a massive rise in non-participation. And this has a nuance also in terms of gender. Uh, women and men did it for perhaps slightly different reasons. There was more bias of health issues in men and less bias on health issues for women. Um, and then there were all the very interesting aspects, like, for example, you would expect those people that retired had enough savings to go and live a comfortable life in retirement. That wasn't the case. Actually, the <clears throat> the people that retired were bang on in the middle of the earnings distribution, even the wage hourly wage distribution. So you can think of those earning between the 25th percentile and the uh, um, uh, uh, 75th percentile. So not the very rich, not the very poor. So um, we have this kind of... Uh, in certain circumstances, uh, the greater social inequality 
kind of emerging because of these choices? You've you've mentioned a sort of kind of squeezed middle where things are happening, um, perhaps to people's advantage, but certainly, I mean, do I read in both of these examples some kind of ratchet effects that people are, are making certain kinds of decisions, whether it's businesses or whether it's individuals, um, and and it's once they've made those decisions, they're probably not going to go back to, to something different. But they might be looking for something different, which raises questions as to, as to how you think about, well, well, for example, well, what's a form of working from home that actually works, that increases productivity, but also makes people happy? What's, what's a form of thinking about uh, the, the macroeconomic changes you've been describing, Carlos, that, that actually would improve people's kind of options and lives is that the sort of the next level of questions that you might start to ask about these things yeah with the working from home for sure i mean that's a question we get asked a lot you know what would be the the ideal setting and i mean the answer we always give look we're, we're having sort of one perspective on this right we can tell you something about you know productivity and innovation and so on but there are other you know very important considerations like, you know, like protection of the climate, right, and, and, and environmental issues, like all the commuting, you know, that causes obviously a lot of pollution. Um, then, you know, mental health issues, and this can be very heterogeneous, right? Some people suffered from mental health issues because, you know, they were too much at home alone, and other people, you know, they might suffer from issues like stress, you know, if they actually go into the workplace, and, you know, for them, a, a different scheme may be better. And we are not experts on this, obviously. Um, so we can sort of, um, you know, say something on the on the economic side, to some extent on the on the climate side. But yeah, these are complex issues. And I think people need to gather across different fields, um, you know, to think about, you know, how we how we best could best organize mm. that. And I guess having you know, employees having a say in it as well would be would be important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. I, yeah. I think from from the if you, if you think about from the policy perspective, um, typically governments would like as many people to go back to work. Uh, in particular, in the aftermath of COVID, um, for the UK in uh, in the aftermath of Brexit, um, and with the cost of living crisis that the world is facing from you know many years in terms of environment and so on. Um, but 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 clearly very important now <clears throat> in terms of in terms of how to make ends meet. Now. That in itself then asks presents the question: Is how do we get these people back to work? And that was in the in the forefront of many, many, many policymakers. And that going back to your original question of how you get the word out, that is why got we got a lot of press in a way, a lot of interest or our work is, can you tell us? Of course, <laughs> there is no silver bullet, but what I would love to do and this is a project that we are embarking on, is trying to estimate what does it take for somebody of this type of characteristic, at this type of age, to go back to work, and in what conditions. Many of those over 50s, for example, will tell you, well, I don't want to work full time. Uh, do I have to retrain? Um, well, how, how do I retrain? Uh, what are the skills that I have? Um, they typically have, yes, general skills, but they also have a lot of specific skills that not necessarily can be transferable from one sector to another. So that's another variable that we have to take into account when we think about reallocation is how much you're losing. And that's why you see younger workers actually reallocating much much more often think, than, um, than, than older exactly, workers. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's an issue more of... Um, the work conditions in the job that they left. So if that could be reorganized, they would be happy to go back. Or do you think it requires them to switch sectors um, 
Do you have some sense from your data? What? So, so yeah, so that's kind of interesting because when we talk about thick sectors, we think about industries. Um, and there was a lot of more reallocation across industries and much less reallocation at type, uh, across types of work, what we call occupations. Mm -hmm. So if you heard um, in the aftermath of the pandemic, the great resignation, I think everybody could, you know, could, could, could oh, wow, yes, everybody's resigning. They want to go out to different types of jobs and so on. That was not the case. Yeah. There was a lot of people moving to other jobs that were paying better because there was these labor shortages mm. and they were trying to get, you know, better pay and moving industries to do that, but they were hardly moving occupations. Mm. So they were really moving firms. Uh, mm. uh, uh, and, and perhaps with those, they came an industry component, but they were doing exactly the same thing. Well, how about this one as a kind of thought experiment? So on the back of these these kind of changes that you've both been discussing that influence individuals, but whole economies as well when they're scaled up in, in quite complex ways. Tell us a bit about how we think about the potential for a four-day week. So um, up until the 1970s, the six-day week in the UK was the common, was the norm. Then it kind of moves to a five and a half day one where most people worked on Saturday mornings, but not afternoons. That would be unthinkable now. Um, uh, it would be, you know, that would be overtime. People would be thinking completely differently about that. But lots of new experiments now um, going from the, the five lasts for one or two generations, two generations, let's say. And now people are talking about the potential for, for a four day week. Um, uh, some experiments with different sorts of businesses showing that productivity can be maintained according to certain measures and according to the type of business and the benefits for individuals. Um, how do you start to look at that? Because that, that at one level, Carlos, that might be saying, oh, crikey, that's going to create even more <laughs> labor problems because we're going from five to four days. But if, if people's productivity is maintained or indeed improved, as some public and private operations have shown, well, then we might actually be onto something new because it starts to address some of the issues you were raising, Friederica, around kind of personal well-being, um, shifting from a five-day working week, five-two with two days off, four-three suddenly seems really an enormous change. I mean, it's only one day, but suddenly it's four days of work mm. and three days off. It's almost half and half. It seems to me psychologically there's, a, there's an enormous kind of shift. If you had that, that may be more attractive to people that you're trying to get back into the labor force. If one could say we have, I suppose the bigger question is about flexible modes of working. Exactly. But, but, but I'm interested in specifically that one area of, of the thing called the four-day week because it sounds attractive to individuals but probably not to people running public and private operations in their first instance because they're thinking, oh, crikey. But actually, if the evidence comes forward in a particular way, we might see that happen quite quickly. So that's a long way around to saying, how do you think about this as an issue? And, and does it raise alarm bells or, or, and or opportunities in, in your mind? Well, I think, I think at the end, the question is whether it raises or decreases productivity, a bit like what Federico was describing earlier. Um, and any flexible type of work um, um, would then 
uh, be fair to ask whether that increases or decreases productivity. And you can see the pros of that um, in terms of well-being, uh, feeling more relaxed, um, and getting on with the job as opposed to procrastinating in the job. Um, so I think that is very important. Now, um, in terms of certain industries, and I think here it's very important to differentiate uh, different industries. So if you think about the food and accommodation, um, there might be rotas that could be organized such that people work uh, uh, in four-day week uh, or four days a week um, uh, to, to cover the demand. Because as you see, if people have more leisure in their time, they will go out, they will spend more. So there will be a and multiplier support, effect. Yeah. Exactly, there will be a multiplier effect. So, and that's another positive of, of having a little bit more leisure without de de you know, decreasing productivity, uh, um, purchasing power. I mean, if you think about wages related to productivity, uh, if productivity actually is maintained or actually goes up, then people have typically more time to spend that money or some of that money uh, and going out. Good point. I mean, the proposition here would be four days of, for would work for five days of income. I mean, you know, that it only works if that's the offer, but they sure. also only works, as you say, if the productivity is maintained. I think, but I think people then have more time to spend the money that they've just earned on other things yeah, or, or, or save money not on childcare, for exactly. example. I mean, that would be... Productivity is key. So mm -hmm. the question is how to measure productivity. And that's why I think, say, the, the, the work that Frederica did on working from home uh, uh, is very important. And others have done uh, in terms of commuting, how much time you save commuting, how much time you save in terms of, you know, having the coffee, of course, in the office with uh, your colleagues catching up. But is that really the productive part or that's the social part? So one has, to, I mean, I'm not advocating all becoming robots. But um, it's a bit like when you just had a child. You just become so productive because, you know, you have so many hours I, I find a, that myself. Yeah, exactly. a day yeah. that you really have to do the work. And people find it that they can cope with it. It's just that when they start growing up, <laughs> you end up uh, perhaps being a little bit more lax yeah. on it. But I think the principle is, is, is there. I don't see a four-day-a-week problem. Uh, I think we just have to reorganize society in a slightly different way. Um, we are toward that direction. I think certain companies, as you say, are already taking that and are doing extremely well. Um, there are books written about it uh, and the, the, the pros and, and, and the cons of it. Um, and I, I think it, it, it could work. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the key question is, do we have a good measure of whether this is increasing productivity or not? And what sectors should be the ones that are should be at the forefront of this four day a week and which ones should be lagging such that the system, you know, uh, the machinery continues mm. working? Mm. How, do, how do you think about it, Federica? Yeah, I guess very similar to Carlos. I think the key thing will have to be um, is productivity maintained or, or increased? I mean, or in, um, you know, if you said earlier, you know, the, the deal has to be um, four days of work for five days of pay, which I agree to. I mean, we see a lot of people are, you know, they're struggling at the moment, you know, with, uh, you know, cost of living. So you, they cannot, you know, work for 80 percent of what they have now. Um, so pay has to be maintained. But of course, we cannot just tell firms you need to maintain the pay. They can only do that if, you know, output stays the same, performance stays approximately the same. And that means productivity has has to increase for that to be feasible for many firms. Um and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, 
uh, key question. Again, I expect like Carlos is going to be very heterogeneous across sectors in, in some sectors, you know, it uh, it will work and others not. In in our sector, for, for example, academics, you know, you tell us for, for, you know, four days, people will still work seven days, not maybe everybody, but some people will. And, uh, you know, so there are also these people. So that was going to be a slightly mischievous <laughs> question. So yeah. could, that, could this work within a university sector? Well, you would say yeah. it all depends yeah. on which part yeah. of a, of yeah. a large large operation I always yeah, said business yeah. um, a large yeah. operation what kind yeah. of work um, that you that yeah. you require and uh, yeah. the norms I mean, and expectations yeah, in the it. different yeah, areas yeah. Yeah. I mean this yeah. is a bigger cultural shift I mean you saw also the city you know they technically have 38 hours per week contracts right but they work 80 hours 90 hours insane amounts of yeah. hours right and it's not because their contract says they have to but you know, because there's other social the pressures and, and expectations. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in particular, when, I mean, the city is a very clear example in which mm-hmm. you are pushed to the mm-hmm. limit. Mm-hmm. But in all the creative uh, uh, industries, including the academics, because uh, the type of jobs that we do is quite creative. Creative sense, sector. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, w- and, pre- and precisely when you're your own boss, in a way, um, you will end up working many more hours than what you're paid for. Um, so yes, you're what 38, but you you sometimes work over the weekends and so on, and so so you do much more. And I I think we right now are in a world where it's a five day a week, but I mean overall we work much more hours than that. And the question is whether we are really productive, if we mm. could do that in a shorter period of time. Mm. Mm. Those, those mm. are the big questions. Let's say a country deliberately decided to reduce its supply of labor by taking some large political decision. Um, And so it wasn't able to um, attract people from other countries to come in and fill some of the spaces that you mentioned. I can Mm. think of an example country that comes to (laughs) mind. (laughs) In looking looking at that, um, by by kind of closing borders and ending freedom of movement and restricting visas, that 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 is obviously hap- having an impact upon upon not just the British economy but but other economies related to it and on on the continent I'm sure as well. Um, how does one then start to think about the 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 individual decisions that, as you were saying, Carlos, and the kind of the patterns of work, Friederica? How do how does one think about trying to introduce kind of creative ways of of addressing labor markets when when a country has done such a set of things um, which has never been done before mm-hmm. um, well I suppose it has been done when when countries deliberately shift to when there's a coup and a country has a different form of management and closes its border mm-hmm. I suppose it's happened in lots of places I mean, th- but but not in mm. the kind of European yeah. context. I mean, a, a country can close their borders quite easily to, to immigration. I mean, or I don't know how easily, but relatively easily. But uh, it's harder to force firms to stay within the country, right? So one yeah. of the things yes. I would expect is that uh, companies just move out mm. uh, to somewhere where they can get the labor that they that they need. Um, at the, yeah. So not, yeah, so there's mm. the, I suppose, the demand for labor firm side of it, which is very important. Those you cannot... Um, shackle to a country uh, and uh, any nationalistic view uh, of firms just goes out of the window very, very easily mm. because they really want to make money and they have a care of duty mm. for the shareholders. Mm. Um, so it's totally normal that uh, they will move. Mm. Um, 
as we see people, as, uh, sorry, as we see uh, uh, companies moving because of tax benefits across countries. Mm. Um, so make no mistake, they, they, they will be mm. uh, uh, trying to survive. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, in terms of labor, for example, um, individuals, they would <clears throat> also need, we need to think about what, what, what <laughs> in a way, Brexit cost was um, the type of labor that we're missing. And this is across the board. So not only talent at the very top left uh, the country, uh, which potentially can be uh, uh, replaced over time through Skills the machinery of universities killing up individuals and taking those jobs and so on. Um, but that takes a long time because if somebody very, very senior with, with a lot of knowledge or certain groups of people like that leave, then that takes a while to, to recover. At the same time, if you go to the other end of the skill distribution, uh, you say, well, I don't want to do those jobs. Those jobs are for immigrants, say, but immigrants are not here. So, so then again, who's going to take those jobs? And, and there is this sense of, it's not there is a magic wand that will say, oh, suddenly you have more people trying to do those jobs. These are jobs for, you know, very nationalistic view. British people, they have a say whether they want to take these jobs or not. And typically they say no. So what do we find is that <laughs> we're shooting ourselves in the foot uh, by by al not allowing that that permeability of labor at, at, at several uh, areas in terms of the occupation skill distribution, then we are creating that imbalance. And by creating that imbalance, then we are, of, of course, exacerbating problems, structural problems, uh, in particular in the UK economy, which was, you know, lack of productivity, um, um, how the, the service sector was growing, how the manufacturing sector was declining, um, perhaps how the IT sector was going, the finance sector was going. It really disrupted everything. Um, so it is a massive, massive thing. So if we thought of, of um, I mean, that's kind of interesting, but let's, if we, let's say there's a, a bigger global shift that has some kind of similarities with this is the, is the coming stabilization of, of world population. And then for some countries, quite quick declines in total numbers of people. So Japan is an obvious example. It's the one... Where, where the population is aging, where I suspect it's kind of people are living longer, so more of the existing population is much older. Um, Japan's population will fall from 120 million, 125 million to 100 million by 2050, and by the middle part of the century to 80 million on current projections and so mm. forth. I mean, these are, these is not shifting the, your 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 labour markets by 100,000 or 200,000. You're talking about 25 million, 40 million, um, that's going to have enormous impacts upon upon the way that economy works and the way that individuals themselves will find themselves encouraged to work in certain ways or other ways. And I can imagine it going in a positive way for individuals, but also in a negative way. Not a comment about Japan, but it just be could be that people panic a little bit about, about labor and say, well, how, what do we do about that? Or they simply try to attract it from elsewhere. So labor doesn't live in a vacuum. Uh, labor is just one input in the <laughs> aggregate production function of an economy, uh, together with capital, so machines, 
uh, buildings, there is land, of course, and there is technology. So they all interact with each other. If you reduce one um, and perhaps increase the technology that makes that labor productive, so here the concept of labor per efficient unit <laughs> is very important. So you can do, say, a hole, you can dig a hole, but if I give you a better piece of capital, a better technology, um, you will dig that hole in half the time. So now you can dig two, two holes, holes. <laughs> <laughs> in the same time. So so that's what really matters, and individuals should be be paid for that. Um, so, and that's what the pro- going go, going full circle. That's mm. the productivity that we're talking about. Um, so, I will not be, in principle, uh, worried about decreases in population for, um, in this case, economic growth, as long as technology capital um, uh, is kept. I mean, we know land is pretty much fixed. Mm. Um, but but that is something that we, we have to think about. And going back to this idea of technological change, uh, that potentially could be an interesting uh, uh, force, still, still uh, interesting to see what will happen, but an interesting force that will complement the decline in labor to, to, to keep productivity going up. Um, I, I, I will think that now, of course, there are issues in terms of retirement, as you suggest, who is going to pay for those retirements? That depends on, obviously, the pension system. Well, how long are we going to work in order to... And health as well. Uh, so who's going to pay for those? So is it that we're going to be paying for a lot more older people uh, with potential health issues, retired, having a blast of a time, and we're all working to, to pay there? Or is a system in which they will have to pay for themselves through individual saving accounts, uh, pension accounts. So that's something, obviously, that one has to be thinking about. So, Friedrich, you talk about cultural issues and norms in that. How, how then, when you're looking at these big trends, as, as Carlos was just saying, um, what are you thinking about when it comes to women or age groups, working women, older women, um, entrance into the labour markets? Um, uh, some of this is going to be determined by not just, as it were, economic opportunity or job mm-hmm. opportunity, but, but cultural norms opportunities to have children or not to have them, family structures, all these sorts of things are going to play a role as well, aren't they? Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, especially sort of flexible working modes are something that could, uh, you know, attract women into work. Um, still the cultural expectation that women predominantly, you know, um, are involved with childcare. And, you know, and I think a lot of women feel, feel that pressure and, and want to spend a lot of time with the kids. Um, and then, faced with sort of a stark dilemma of either working or, you know, taking, spending a lot of time with the kids. Many of them choose to spend the time with the kids. But um, but in, in that sense, flexible working arrangements can, of course, help. It can sort of let women, you know, choose the, the best of both worlds for some period, you know, of time. And also men, of course, you know, but um, the, the, yeah, the, the social pressures yeah. are not as, as strong yeah. on, on, on men, uh, probably. Um, yeah, so in that sense, it can, it can definitely help. Um, it's interesting with respect to a sort of automation and the technological change that, that Carlos was mentioning. No, I mean, we you talked about the decreasing populations and then, you know, we obviously see in Japan especially they're using a lot of, you know, automation and, you know, robots. And, I mean, they, they are sort of in professions that... that um, but typically um, done uh, by women like nursing, for example, right? I mean, that's sort of one sector where where people are studying now, right? What's going to be the perception of robots, you know? Can a robot actually 
deliver care, you know, I mean, how how do you like an old, how does an old person feel, right? If it's a robot that comes and, you know, maybe does some, you know, you know, changes like making the bed or something, which normally a person would have done, right? Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of, you know, um, things to consider in the, the gender, um, the effects on sort of, you know, gender differences uh, of these uh, trends. Uh, uh, yeah, they're going to be, gonna be, they're gonna yeah. be interesting. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So we haven't mentioned it, but we'll mm. save this for another day. I mean, it mm. does raise questions about what AI can do to help this in future. Mm. I suspect that's coming at us much faster than most people think. Mm. Well, could we just conclude? Um, thank you very much indeed with a, a couple of kind of, Top recommendations. I know. I know that's a slightly unfair question because we're talking about the kind of wider complexities of, of 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 labor and labor markets and cultural values and so forth. In a sense, your kind of your hopes as you look forward, as we kind of come out of the COVID phase, if we can use that as the determinant here, and all of these shifting um, opportunities. Um, uh, does it look kind of? Good when you're thinking about the opportunities for individuals. Um, are you are you sort of confident, or are you would you just say depends on the data, depends on the circumstances? Friederike, your your initial comment, which yeah. would be absolutely fair. But what what in a sense would be your hopes? Hmm. No, of course uh, things depend. But I'm I, I'm I'm uh, mildly optimistic. I think we are sort of in a very, in some sense. Well, we, we are in a very, I was going to say we're in harsh times, but of course, if you look historically, we're probably not in harsh times. <laughs> but what I meant is that, um, you know, a lot of people, I think they feel a lot of uh, pressures, you know, financially, economically at the moment. There's a lot of, you know, um, things changing everywhere. We, we sort of, we, we've barely sort of come out mentally out of the pandemic, right? I mean, as you say, we have no longer lockdowns, but but people still feel sort of the after effects. And then there is, you know, the sort of the economic pressures that we face now, um, you know, worldwide, but also especially in this country. And uh, so, yeah, and uh, at the same time, there are developments like, you know, in academia, we're worried about chat GDP now, right? And, you know, and what, what will be the consequences of this? But I think, you know, all these uh, technological developments, they, they open uh, opportunities also. I think the one thing the COVID pandemic has shown us that we can change things very quickly. We developed vaccines at an unbelievably, you know, quick speed and they were effective. Um, we changed our working patterns and we actually realized we can work very differently and it works as well. Even so, as I said, productivity declined in our study. You know, they were still, it was still not a complete disaster. And, um, and so I think uh, it probably, you know, despite all the negativities, also gave us confidence that, that we can to, uh, you know, survive a lot of changes and, and change a lot of things and, and, and be fine afterwards. And I think we should take that confidence and, and tackle some of the very important, you know, questions that face us now with economic inequality, you know, immigration. I think we've touched upon yeah. climate, of course. Exactly. Mm. Absolutely. Carlos. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> in, indeed. So, I think uh, in terms of the labor market, I, I believe that there is still the un unsolved question of productivity, of how to increase productivity. Uh, in, I'm talking about the UK economy. Um, that's been a real struggle, uh, understanding the root causes and thinking about how to correct them and what are the right policies. I think that's something that I'm not that optimistic on, on in terms of how we, we're going to be going and how the economy is in a way, uh, um, rebalancing after COVID. I think there is still that drag of productivity. And if we don't address that uh, at a 
you know, government level, I think we are going to be a little bit stuck. Tough times. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of individuals going back to say uh, their normal lives, in particular, thinking about students going to university, um, I think we need to think about how do we up upskill individuals in this country a little bit more. Um, I think there is a sense in which you have to go to university and get a degree and try to get for for work. Um, I think that's fine. I think there is a population that will definitely benefit from that. I think there should be uh, a bit more options in terms of more practical work, perhaps more technical work. Um, and it doesn't have to be a university uh, degree, like academic degree, that's what I, I refer to. Uh, it could be a very practical degree uh, as well. Um, I'm not necessarily thinking about bringing back polytechnics, but that idea of a more practical degree, I think that's something that we have to think about. Um, going forward, um, and and I think the big question really that we uh, have to to focus our minds is climate change. Um, as Federico was saying, we've we've done amazing things as 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 as, as a group of humans <laughs> uh, in the pandemic, creating this. Uh, uh, very, very effective vaccines, very effective uh, um, ways of, of dealing with, with, with our new circumstances. Um, and I wonder is there's so many barriers <laughs> mm. to, to, to try to tackle uh, um, the biggest crisis ever, which is the environment. Uh, uh, and, and for some reason, we need to get uh, those, I mean, that, that are there. For some reason, we are not able to do those, uh, bring those barriers down. And that what puzzles me because it, it is political. It is uh, 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 incentives in terms of economic incentives. It is natural resources. It, it, it is a very complex problem. Um, and everything will change either in advance of their crisis like or, it or after not. a crisis. Yeah. So, so. Yeah. Well, that's, that's um, on that note, that the uh, both optimistic but also uh, some of the enormous challenges that we still face. Mm. Um, thank you very much indeed. A fascinating conversation. So, Friederike Mengel and Carlos Carrillo Tudela from the Department of Economics at the University of Essex. Many thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. <laughs>